you have to realize that you're not the boss just giving the orders. Your whole job, it's an inverted pyramid. You're there to provide support so the people that are actually adding the value can, can do it, can do it well, and have everything they need. And it's a safe environment and they understand the quality requirements and they've got everything required to, to do a good job. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. Some of my favorite conversations on this podcast are with CEOs and presidents that are leading mid-sized American manufacturing companies. And that's exactly what we've got queued up today. From how to decommoditize your business to changing the general public's perception of manufacturing, to the traits of a great leader, we've packed a lot into this conversation. Let me introduce our guest. Mick North is CEO and president of Anderson Global, a leader in innovative tooling solutions. A dynamic and forward-thinking CEO, Mick has comprehensive experience in automotive, repetitive manufacturing, as well as job shop environments. Mick is also skilled in continuous improvement lean manufacturing implementation, business consulting, materials management, human resources, business development, and manufacturing engineering. Mick leverages interpersonal skills to manage union relations and to coach and develop top performing teams. And he has proven aptitude for driving technology and business improvement and consistently achieving goals. Mick, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Joe. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. You're overdue, I must say. I've known you for quite a while, and we've had the opportunity to do some work together, too. And I think what you've done since taking over at president, as president at Anderson Globals is really impressive. And I'd, I'd love to just kind of let you, get, you know, give a little bit of your backstory to our audience here and talk about how you wound up where you are today. Sure. Well, probably go back to 1989 when I moved to the United States from, from England. So I'm a degree mechanical engineer, and I had an opportunity to work in a manufacturing plant in, in Oxford, Michigan. Packed my bags and came over and went to manufacturing. Um, met my wife. She's an American-born, and, and we've now got eight kids, if you can believe that, from ages uh, 10 through to 27, I think. Yeah. Wow. So busy, busy, busy time, but, but great time. So yeah, ma manufacturing. I can Basically, I can say that Half of that time, so 15, 16 years has been running manufacturing facilities, predominantly three, three facilities. And then the rest of the time has been in what I would call manufacturing support services at, at a kind of a corporate level at a tier one automotive. Um, so I've run plants, small entrepreneurial plants. I joined the first one, it was 10 million in sales. And then it grew to 50 million and I was the plant manager when, when I left there. 
went to a bigger facility and learned a lot there and then went to a really big facility in Buffalo, New York, which was like 600 people and fully unionized plant. All of them metal forming, which was interesting. Uh, and then I had the interesting time, opportunity to go back to the first plant that, that I was at when I was much younger as the, as the leader of that plant. So I got to see, uh, and perhaps I'll talk about that later, why I think it's important that, that some of the, the, the young kids that I, that I hired initially out of school, most often without any, had even graduating high school and see that they had created a, a career for themselves in manufacturing that was, that, that had created a good middle class lifestyle for them. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. When I got moved into a corporate manufacturing engineering, so I probably, at the peak there, I probably had somewhere between 20 and 30 people working in various subsets of manufacturing services, which included things like automation, vision systems, tooling, metallurgy, process simulation, design, high pressure die casting, support people, a whole bunch of different stuff. So that was kind of interesting. And one of the key things that I did in that role was, was best practices across, in the end, it ended up being like 36, 37 plans globally, just to understand in each facility, what was the best of the best, and then to help try and transfer that across the other 37 plans. So I think that that background, I think, has set me up for, for what I'm doing today. And that's probably the summary I've got for you. Yeah, no, that's great. I, it's always interesting to hear kind of, you know, all the different experiences that lead you where you are and kind of shaped the position you're in now. And I, I know that Anderson Global, where you are now, has been through a few evolutions over the years and fairly big ones. And when you stepped in as president and it was late 2020, does that sound right? Yeah. So, so, so what happened there was that my, I was working for a tier one automotive supplier in that, in that corporate manufacturing services executive, executive director role. And then COVID hit, the big contraction in the automotive for three months there. So my job was, was eliminated and everything got downsized. So I was out of work for six months. I did a little bit of consulting support for, for a vision system AI company. And then got a call from somebody related to Anderson Global, actually the, the bank that supports Anderson Global. And their CEO had left abruptly and would I like to get involved? Would I come and take a look at it? So I did and joined on November 2020 and then walked into a little bit of a, a, an issue at the time. What had happened was the previous CEO, and I think lesson for small manufacturers, that, that CEO was financially oriented, didn't really understand manufacturing, engineering, didn't have that background and was trying to move the company from its traditional foundry-based tooling market that it supplied into an aerospace business, a military and aerospace. And when you understand it, you know, in a marketing type level, that's one thing, but you've got to understand the engineering behind those two, two types of market and what it takes. So when, when I took a look at that, and we got some aerospace business in the shop when I arrived and, and, and it was, it was hemorrhaging money in, in terms of what it was doing. And when you understand why it was really associated with the, it was a big skills gap between the, the core competence of our people 
and what was needed for the aerospace business. Likewise, the equipment wasn't well suited at a, at a kind of a fundamental level in terms of tolerancing that could be held. And so that meant that, that it was just going to be a huge effort to get to aerospace. And then when I really got talking to the people, and it's all about the people, isn't it? When you, when you begin to understand what these guys do, and we, we've got uh, 50 skilled pattern makers at, at Anderson plus 30 support staff, including engineers. When you really understand what they know and the knowledge they have around boundary tooling and the casting process, that's the core competency, and that, that's what they do really well. And that's a that's a rare skill in my experience. And I've seen 37 plants across the United States, and I thought we have something here. So what I concluded was that we we didn't have a capability issue; we had a marketing problem. We needed to get that word out, which is when, of course, that you and I connected because. What do I know about marketing? I've been in engineering and manufacturing for 30 years. I know nothing about sales and marketing, but you do. So <laughs> that's when we started uh, working together, which was which has turned out great. Um, so that's got us to where we're at today. Which, the other thing that with with Anderson as well was it had been reliant on on five or six tier one EM automotive customers over the years, and had done very well and, and developed some great capability and systems, but those customers, either through the fact that powertrain was moving to electrification or sourcing had become more competitive and they'd gone offshore a lot to China, those customers were, were, were dwindling down and Anderson was struggling as a result because there, there, there wasn't a diversification of customers and industries. So again, that again spelled the fact that this is a marketing problem. We need to get this word out, this capability that we have in Muskegon, Michigan, we can do things and help customers. They just need to know where we are and what we can do. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first the first part of that there is just being focused, understanding where you are truly creating value and for who. And I think you know, it, it was very it was clear to me when you and I first talked that you knew you you were you already knew you had to kind of change the. I guess turn the ship back to you know the the core focus, and then you said it. It's it's when you know who you're trying to reach, and and you know what matters to those people. It's a matter of how do we get out there and and deliver messaging that is meaningful to those exact people because we know them so well, and we know what makes them different, and we know we can we can help them specifically. So it's been fun to watch the progression of how you've done that and how you've kind of just taken that under your reins to make it happen over the last you know year plus. Well, you and, you and Gorilla have been guiding the process there. So it's been very helpful. Thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> so Mick, shifting gears here a bit, told me recently that you, know, you believe U.S. manufacturers really have to figure out how to bring more value to the table than just being a commodity supplier. And I completely agree. I, I was sort of nodding vigorously when you said it in our, our prep call here. I think there's you know always a way to decommoditize yourself. And in in a lot of cases, there those differentiators are are already there. People are just aren't, you know, they're not communicating them well to their market. So kind of curious to hear from your perspective, you know, how have you been able to do that at Anderson? Well, you're exactly right. So, Anderson Global, it, it, we're never going to be the, the lowest cost 
source for foundry tools. If, 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 you, if, you, if you're looking for the lowest cost, lowest price, then we're probably not who you need to be talking to. So um, what do we bring to the table? And, and again, this leads to the marketing is to bring, bring this out, I think, is that, you know, we have an engineering capability. So that, that means that if you're a small foundry, and perhaps you, you've got somebody that has designed your tools, designed your casting process, and maybe there's just one of him or her, and now they're close to retirement and you don't have that kind of backup because, let's face it, not a huge amount of uh, young engineers are going into the, to the, to the foundry business. We have that capability. We, we've got access to five engineers on staff, and we can, we can take a, 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 a casting concept and help a customer to design it for the casting process of their choice. We can simulate that process. We can run the customer through all of those simulations and we can optimize it so that it's, it's, it's the lowest cost solution, it's the best quality, it's got the, the highest yield, the less, least waste in the process. And then we can design tooling around that in, in, with 3D models. And then, of course, we can manufacture the whole thing through a process of we, we carry uh, four program project managers on staff so that those a customer working with us will, will get easy access to feedback as to where their project's at and communication. We, we, uh, um, we uh, produce timing plans and all these kind of things. At the same time, we, we, because one of our biggest customers in the past has been General Motors, we have all, all the kind of systems in place that supplying to a large OEM requires. So we we have that all of those quality systems that are, that are in place. So I think we bring value that way and we differentiate ourselves. And then the other thing that we do is that uh, because of those engineers, we we supply customers multiple casting processes. So we have access to best practices from one type of process into another. So if you're a small foundry and you only know one process and, and you've designed your own tools for years and you haven't really had access to what's, what the big wider world is doing, we bring that knowledge to the table. So we see what's going on in the industry. We're intimate with best practices from a, from a tooling design, casting design standpoint. And we can bring that. So that I think those are probably the three ways that we we differentiate and we bring more value than just a, a commodity tool supplier. That's great. And I think you you talk about that the right way. You show it. I see the way you guys go to market and you actually show examples of this. I think a lot of companies get so caught up in the, you know, just talk we do tooling and like we, you know, we work with these types of companies. And I think the the differentiator often is in the way you solve problems and you it's it's the engineer to engineer conversations that probably happen with with customers. That's so it, it's so key. It's it's not just when you just talk about the the physical thing you deliver, whether whether it's a product or or a service, you kind of just sound like everybody else. You know, how are you actually creating value beyond that for your customers. I think those are the things you really need to be able to articulate and use in your outward facing messaging. Yeah. And, and, and we've got a recent example of that. So, so again, since some recent marketing efforts, we, we brought in a new customer, Canadian customer that, that specifically came to us 
and it started off with a, with a message on LinkedIn from the from the CEO owner, and then it was a phone call between him and I, and he was looking he was looking to first of all he was like looking around he was asking around values and our approach to business and uh, how we did things and then he wanted to know what our capabilities were. Um, and then once he became comfortable with that, we, we set up a, a discussion with his engineers and my engineers, and we looked at a specific project that he was looking at, and my guys did some simulation work, and then we were able to have some process discussions, and, and his engineers were getting excited, my engineers were getting excited, they were all, the, the ideas were going back and forth, and then he and I followed up with a phone call, and he said that exactly what he was looking for, so he has a foundry. There's been very little outside influence. He's got a couple of good guys moving towards the back end of their career. One's a German guy. He's very rigid in his thinking. Very, very difficult for him to be convinced that somebody else knows something he doesn't. But but sure enough, we were able to convince him that by collaboration, we could get a one plus one equals three type situation. And since then, we've, we've already made two tools for them. We've done three design projects and... and we were talking yesterday about another one coming pretty quickly here. And he's, now he's getting us involved when he's quoting his customer. So instead of, he, he, instead of he's not quoting blind, he's bringing that project to us. His engineers, my engineers, kick it around. We take a look at it. We collaborate, give us some thoughts. Is it hard? Is it difficult? Should we check this, do this, do that? And then he goes to his customer and he's able to deliver a much better proposal because he's got a lot more knowledge. So I think that's it. That's a major value that we can bring for a customer that's willing to partner up. Um, some, they just want to buy on price and, and that, that's, that's just it. But for those that want to collaborate, I think we can bring a lot to the table. Well, and you think about the difference in customer relationship with someone like that versus someone who's just looking for, we want to buy tooling, right? Or, or whatever, where it's just about the, the physical deliverable and if you if you're not positioning yourself to the market as a partner and a problem solver and actually demonstrating not just saying it but demonstrating through you know your content and speaking to the things that matter like sharing some of your expertise speaking to the things that you know matter to those engineers who are trying to solve problems inside of those companies you're just going to be commoditized you're going to be pushed to the bottom and the other thing is you're not going to get discovered until everything's in the hands of procurement and procurement is absolutely going to commoditize you if whoever yeah. was looking for them aren't. So yeah, I love the approach and I love the way you guys are doing it. That's, that's not to say that we, we don't get involved in that, that type of bid process. Of course, we, we, of course. We absolutely do. And it's typically, it's on the more complex tooling that, that, that yep. is not easy to make. So there's a limited number of suppliers that can handle it. We can handle it. We've got a lot of capacity. And, yep. and uh, we can we can get that done. But I love working with the, with the smaller guys that, that want to collaborate at an engineering level. Yeah, certainly. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Mary, take it away. Yes, so I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Mary Keough. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50-plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations. We meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic, and one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. 
Topics have included how to get better at a manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. Oh, and on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where our attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together all week long between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. Mick, you, know, you, you told me in a previous conversation that you think manufacturing is misunderstood by a majority of the general public. I agree, based on all the conversations I have with people like you and you know various leaders inside the sector. I, I'm curious to hear your perspective on that and why it bothers you. Well, it bothers me a lot. I think... You know, I think I told you that I came I came over from England. One of the reasons I left England was that engineering and manufacturing was just in decline, and, and I saw a limited future there. So the United States I felt was still a place where manufacturing and engineering was was valued, and I get concerned that that's going the wrong way. Um, and I think it's a, a misunderstanding or a lack of knowledge probably at a political level, but maybe at a general public level as well. I don't realize how much value manufacturing brings to an economy. I mean, that's not an issue in Germany, for instance, when I, when I visited there and spent time in those manufacturing facilities. That is not how manufacturing is seen in that country. It's a critical job provider. It's a critical value provider. We need to get the same kind of thing going here in the United States. I'm a, I'm a US citizen now, and, and I care deeply about this country. And I use this example sometimes. I, uh, if you look at the average size target, if you look at if you go Google targets revenues per store, you know some of the best ones are are up over a hundred thousand dollars a day. Some are as low as twenty thousand dollars a day. The average is fifty, sixty thousand dollars a day. That equates to, you know, maybe thirty-five million dollars of revenue per year in a store. Most of which is purchased in marked up and sold on. So there's very little value add going on there. You know, I ran a factory right here in Southeast Michigan. When I walked into that factory, it was producing $220 million of revenue in about a target-sized facility with 200 people. The material content was around 50%. So meaning that there were 50% of that 200 million was value add. So $100 million of value add or a million dollars of revenue per employee. Well, you think about that and you think about the supply base that that, that supports that plant and that factory and, and the value that's created. The the jobs, these are these are not the, the jobs running the machines, operating the automation, it's a heavily automated plant, lots of robot robotics, not that many people. 200 people is a is, is a fairly low or small size manufacturing facility, but those jobs for, for non-degreed workers, you know, $60,000, $70,000 a year plus overtime. So this is a middle class type, type wage. 
And then for, for the technicians that are helping support the automation, particularly the controls technicians, again, not necessarily degreed, the top ones perhaps, yes, but the others not so much, 80, 90, $100,000 a year. Uh, and, and I don't think that's well understood. I know my kids' school, they don't understand that. They're pushing them into college, and, and maybe that's that, that's correct for, for a lot of kids, but there's somewhere that doesn't necessarily make sense. And I don't think they get to hear about these jobs. Uh, you know, I uh, one of my last things that I did at my, my corporate manufacturing services position was to create or help create an entry-level controls technician training program where you would bring in kids some some with degrees some without degrees and you and you 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 create a controls laboratory where you're dealing with vision systems artificial intelligence algorithms to be used in manufacturing robotics all other types of machine controls and and and, and just getting them trained up in that and even you know the, and the reason for that was because you can't hire those people Today, I guarantee I, I can, I can, there's six or seven factories that I still quite stay close to that, that just are so short of those people because everything's getting automated. So it annoys me that, that we're, we're not moving more people into these kind of fields and where they can make, make good living, you know? take care of families. Manufacturing does that. So that's a long story short, but that's kind of what's behind some of this, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, some of these and even entry level salaries are are nothing to. I mean, they're, they're legit salaries, like great careers. You you can you go in without loads of debt in a lot of cases versus you know even some who come out of high school and go straight into trades. And so I've, I've talked to a lot of people about that, and a lot of it I think is is just perception of manufacturing and and what's so different today I think versus 10, 20 years ago is look at all the technology and you're talking to a generation like Gen Z and millennials who've grown up with iPhones in their pockets and iPads around the house. And, you know, like they're living in a technology based world and there's so much interesting technology talked about vision systems a little bit earlier and, and various things happening with AI and the, the way that automation is becoming so prevalent because we need it, frankly, these are things that I think a lot of younger people don't realize are are happening. And you think of manufacturing and you think of probably what you saw on TV shows years ago, or it was you know, dark and dingy and, and stuff. So I think a lot of it is like, how do we, how do we get out there and broadcast to younger generation and their parents too, frankly, who probably have the same perception and show them what's, what's so interesting about the manufacturing sector right now. Yeah. I had a few years where each year I would take a, a bunch of high schoolers, um, through some of the factories that, that, I, that I was running. These, these factories are, in some cases, you know, all the equipment's white. They're, it's as clean as a hospital almost. It's brightly lit, like, like almost like you got to wear sunglasses in there. It's so bright because you want to see, people got to be able to see the parts they're making. And just one manufacturing line out of five, I know for sure, was a $35 million investment. <laughs> It's, and this is going on in the middle of communities that they have no idea that that's happening in the middle of the community. It's such a, a value-adding activity. People have, I think, picked up on the, this message that, that, that the amount of people working in manufacturing is, has steadily gone down over the last 50 years, and of course it has. But the amount of value that we can produce per person is dramatically up because of the levels of automation. 
I, I remember that first factory that I started out there. There was there was a there was a forging press, and and one guy would be able to make one differential gear for 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 a vehicle every thirty seconds. And that was the speed the process ran. He'd make a gear every thirty seconds, and, and you can multiply that out by that. 24 hours in a day over three shifts and you, you know the gears that you make. Well, towards the back end of my career, my team was involved in installing a press in a facility in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and that press was going to make 50 of those gears per minute. Wow. And one man was going to run two of the machines. So <laughs> that, that's, that's what's happened. Pretty cool. Well, Mick, as the leader of a mid-sized American manufacturing company, what are some of the traits that you believe it takes to be a great leader? Hmm. Well, this probably applies to everything, but, but it definitely applies to, to, to manufacturing. I think for, for me, the most important thing is leadership has to be authentic, honest, and integral. So you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Right. So you can't, you can't have a leadership style that's that's not authentic to you. So for me, genuinely interested, I'm interested in people and I'm interested in manufacturing. So if I can talk to somebody about what they're doing and how they're doing it and, and fully appreciate those skills, that you know, I think that's that's an important part of what I what I do as a leader. I try and try and understand where a facility is at and what makes it work. So again, getting into the people there. Leadership has to be, call it servantly leadership, right? You have to you have to realize that you're not the boss just giving the orders. Your whole job, it's an inverted pyramid. You're there to provide support so the people that are actually adding the value can can do it, can do it well and have everything they need and it's a safe environment and they understand the quality requirements and they've got everything required to, to do a good job. That's a big part of the, the leadership of a manufacturing facility. Another thing that, I, that I've always prescribed over the years, and, and this came out of the Japanese and the Toyota production system, was the concept of go to Gemba. Gemba uh, for the Japanese was the place where value was added. So if you really want to understand a problem in the facility. You can't look at a presentation or you can't look at photographs or you can't look at charts or data alone. All of those things can be useful, but you really need to go out there, talk, see, look at the process yourself, look at the issue yourself, hands-on, talk to the people involved, ask the questions yourself, and then you get a much better understanding of what the problem is. And you're much less likely to, to, to make mistakes. And you get a lot more respect that way because you actually understand what the heck is going on. Another concept taught to me by, repeated to me many times by an old boss of mine, and he's absolutely right, was decisions should be made by the people who are capable of making the decisions at the lowest level in the organization. So in other words, push the decision-making down to the lowest level that's capable of making that decision. If you as the leader want to make all the decisions, then you're going to be the bottleneck and you're going to be so far away from, from what, the, what the real decisions or the correct decisions should be. You're going to make a lot of mistakes and things are going to move in very slow and everything's going to end up on your desk. So a big part of what I do is, is trying to make sure that we, we push decisions down, get them made where they need to be made and make sure that the people that are making those decisions understand 
what the direction of the company is, what the priorities are, so that they can make those decisions correctly. So that's that's probably the the four big things. Hiring and promoting good people is 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 another skill. So critical skills. So I will always get involved in in that side of things because I think um you know you've got you've got to build that right team. If you if you have a manufacturing organization, it's kind of like a sports team, right? You've got to you've got to fit it together. You can't all have superstars because they won't play well together you've got to have the right mix of skills abilities you've got to have people that can fit with others work with others it's a it's a complex psychology of, of, of manufacturing to make a successful team so rolling your sleeves up getting actively involved in, in in that is critical and i have always said when i'm hiring i don't necessarily look for experience as much as i look for attitude aptitude and energy yeah the, the the skills we can train the first three not so much so particularly at the at the, at the younger side of things when when, when you, you're trying to hire somebody or promote somebody again energy attitude aptitude just just critical and finally i think as, as, a, as a leader you, you've got to you've got to focus on morale of of the workforce of the of the team doesn't mean everything has to be everybody's got to be happy all the time that's that's not what we're talking about but the, but, but the morale of the organization there has to be we have to know what the purpose is got to know what the score is in the game they've got to know that the people that are that are that are taking advantage and not pulling their weight will be removed out of the way that the right people will be promoted and rewarded uh, that we're pulling in the same direction and we have alignment of what everybody's trying to do if you do that you'll have good morale there's a reason why the U.S. military measures morale in a, in, in a unit because they know that it's it's a critical factor in, in winning battles. And same is true in manufacturing. We'll make this was a great conversation. Can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about Anderson Global? Uh, well, the website is a, is a good place to start. Uh, www.andersonglobal.com. And you're going to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Search on Michael North, uh, um, probably the best way. Um, and my email is uh, mnorth at andersonglobal.com. Beautiful. Well, Mick, thanks for doing this today. All right. Thanks for having me. You bet. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>